Ah, there we go. The gag is off. My name is Jim and I'm an alcoholic. And good evening to everybody across the pond and good afternoon to all my friends here in the US. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be a, uh, a speaker here for this wonderful meeting. Janesta, thank you so much for asking me to do this. And this was the very perfect day to do it because it's very cold and I didn't plan to go out all day. So I might as well spend it with my friends. Anyway, my home group is the Interaction Big Book Step Study here in New York City. It only exists on Zoom on Wednesday nights at 7.30 local time. Um, and it's a great meeting. I started it with a bunch of other people 25 years ago. And uh, we talk about recovery. We talk about getting well in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I might say a couple of things that you may not necessarily agree with, and that's okay. Uh, I have a long experience of being sober since uh, August 8th of 1980. I was 17 years old when I came to AA, and I've not found it necessary to go back and discover what I already know, and that is I'm an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. Uh, and there's plenty of people who've done it for me. Uh, thankfully, um, you know, when I came to AA, the people I got sober with didn't believe in this bait and switch thing that seems to go on a lot. like. They didn't tell me that I could stay sober on fellowship. Nobody ever said that. What they did tell me was that I was too sick to comprehend the 12 and 12, and that the big book is my best source for this message. So here's my first edition big book. And uh, the message hasn't changed since that book was printed. And I'm grateful because spiritual principles don't change with time. Think about that for a moment. Spiritual principles don't change with time. People change. Their desire to actually apply spiritual principles changes over time, too. So let me back up. I grew up in uh, northern Westchester County, just north of New York City. I was born in Manhattan. We moved up there when I was small. Uh, I was born to a, an alcoholic mother and an uh, atheist father. And uh, so I, I liken it to as if, now if any of you are familiar with the old Star Trek series, James Kirk marrying Mr. Spock. I mean, those are the two polar opposites, and that were my parents. So, yeah, there was a lot of mixed messages, a little crazy in the household. Um, my mother was drunk every day. I'd come home from school finding her passed out on the floor or dry heaves, you name it, uh, in the kitchen. It was uh, chaos, to say the least. Lots of fighting. Um, you know, from the very beginning, I felt like I was, um, I was just uncomfortable with my own skin. Like I was dropped off here by a spaceship. So my mother got sober when I was eight years old and things changed. We went from that nice big house on five acres to uh, an apartment in town. Uh, the fighting stopped. My mother was going to meetings morning, noon and night and she was still chain smoking and drinking coffee like uh, it was her job. So she uh, fell in with a bunch of people who knew about this program that is the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and a spiritual awakening that keeps us sober. So it's not serial meeting attendance. That's helpful, but that is not a program of recovery. Uh, and what she did was she took the 12 steps of AA and recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And I got to bear witness to this growing up. Uh, it wasn't always easy. Uh, my mother uh, would drink after 20 years of sobriety and die a couple of years later at the age of 59, which was a pretty ugly affair. Uh, but she did show me what the path of sobriety looked like. Now, my own drinking took off in high school, like a lot of young people, and uh, I never had a hard time getting 
alcohol. You know, just uh, back in the 70s, it was pretty easy anyway. Nobody really paid much of attention. Um, and as long as nobody made trouble, nobody cared that much. And I, you know, went along and I drank for effect. I didn't drink like uh, I was a connoisseur of fine wines and beers, but I drank for the way it made me feel. And when I picked up a drink, I felt normal. I felt like I thought everybody else felt comfortable within my skin. I could ask a girl to dance. I could request a song from the DJ. All these things that I could not possibly have done were not for alcohol. It seemed to have been my answer. And for a great time, it was uh, until it started to turn on me in high school later on. Um, I did a lot of drinking and driving. Uh, one memorable event was, uh, yeah, it was Easter weekend. I uh, go with my friends and I drink a quart of Southern Comfort. I, um, I'm fighting with one of my friends in the street, play fighting. And next thing I know, I'm waking up on the couch in my mom's apartment. And I don't know how I got there. You know, it was another typical blackout, and I'm hung over. And my mother said, get up, you're going to church. Not that she was going, but get up, you're going to church. So I, you know, throw some clothes on, throw some water on my face. I walk out to my car, and I hit something the night before, and I have no recollection of what I hit. Thankfully, there was no blood. I think I just kind of went off the road or something. But uh, in a blackout, these are the things that happen. From that point on, I said, okay, only beer. And maybe a little marijuana just, you know, because. And uh, so that's, you know, I went on my merry way that way. So um, senior year of high school, uh, I graduated by the skin of my teeth. I drank every single day. Uh, I drank because it made me feel like I was a normal person. And once I got started, there was no stopping. So I managed to graduate high school. It was, uh, you know, in July, uh, July of 1980, and you know, by August, I'm you know drunk every night with my buddies, and my mom and my stepfather were going away on vacation, and my sister and brother were away at camp, and I had the apartment all over myself. So you know, invited my friends over, drinking games over and over and over again, stayed drunk. I don't know, I don't know how the cops were never called, but they weren't. Uh, the night that my uh, mom and my stepfather came home. I cleaned that apartment like nothing ever took place. In fact, it was cleaner than when they left, which should have been evidence enough that something was going on. The way my mother used to clean clean the apartment was like with a rake and a leaf blower, so she wasn't much of a housekeeper. Um, so anyway, all the evidence was disposed of. There was no, you know, telltale signs. Off I went to a pool party, and the pool party started at eight o'clock. I was at one of my buddy's house about 20 miles away. And I got there at six because he needs help tapping the keg. I mean, I'm the guy to do it. So I'm pre-gaming a party that I'm invited to. I'm already drunk before I even get started. And it was a hot August night and I never got in the pool. I was there for my primary purpose, which was to drink as much as I could, which I did. I never left the keg except to make room for more beer. And I got good and drunk, and then I had to drive back to Yorktown, about 20 miles away. And, uh, of course, I'm that drunk that I'm seeing stuff in the road that's not there. And I'm driving into the town of Yorktown and down this hill on a street called Gomer Street, which kind of glides off to the left a little bit, and I did not glide to the left. I passed out, and I hit my beautiful 1977 Pontiac Fiber into a telephone pole. That was the moment of grace, the time where I could connect my trouble with my drinking. 
And I hit that pole and I knocked it into the street and I, you know, smashed the windshield with this hard Irish head, which uh, didn't dent the head much, but it dented the windshield pretty good. Um, and it was right there that, you know, I was woken up to the problem that I had. And that was alcoholism. I knew what it looked like. I'd been to enough open meetings and heard people share. Um, so, you know, lights came on in the house across the street. I walked over. It's like 1230 at night. I uh, walked over and asked to use the phone because back then there were no cell phones. And I called my mom and I said, uh, I'm on, I'm on Goma Street. I wrecked the car, but not drinking. Maybe I'll go to AA. And the cursing and screaming that came over the phone after I said that, just I don't think it ever ended. Uh, she finally hands the phone to my stepfather who said, asked me where I was. And he came out to get me. By then the town cops were there. And again, it's 1980. People weren't giving out DWIs like they are today. Uh, so, you know, they said, look, we'll take care of this. Go sit in your father's car. And they did. I uh, went home to more yelling and screaming, and I passed out of my bed at like 1.30 in the morning. And, you know, the mind of the alcoholic is a funny thing. It seems to find a way to find a way around what's going on just to preserve the idea of drinking. And when I woke up the next, you know, like at noon the next day, my mind was already saying, hey, Jim, you're too young. You made a couple of mistakes. It'd be different next time, like it had many other times. And right then, my mother walked in with a list of names and numbers of family friends, people who were in AA. And she said, and this is probably the most important thing she ever said to me. She said, I will not be your AA taxi service. I will not be your AA concierge. It is up to you to make the phone call and get yourself to a meeting. And I am thankful every single day that she said that to me, that nobody spoon fed me this thing. It was all up to me to take the action. And you know, that moment of grace I talked about, you know, is that point of suffering that makes me willing to take the actions necessary in order to recover from alcoholism. Now, if we don't take these actions, given a little bit of time, that desperation is no longer there. And that's why the discipline of our AA program is so important. Because once that desperation goes, if the discipline is not there, you're going to make for the door at some point. You will need some kind of relief from life that you no longer have because you don't drink anymore. So I went and I um, picked up the phone, made a phone call. One of the guys came and picked me up, brought me to the Bedford Village Group, which was a meeting that Bill Wilson used to go to because uh, Stepping Stones was just up the street. Um, of course, Bill had been dead for a number of years by the time I got uh, into AA, but um, <clears throat> I walked into the room. Now it's hard to picture now, but I had long scraggly hair, I had a Fu Manchu mustache, and I had this pasty white complexion like I hadn't seen daylight, like I was a vampire or something. Uh, that's what I looked like when I came to AA. A skinny kid, just short of 18 years old. Uh, two young guys grabbed me, noticed that I was new to AA somehow, and they 12-stepped me. They taught me about Alcoholics Anonymous. They didn't just thrust a phone number into my hand and say, give me a call. But what they did was they taught me how to identify with the speakers I would hear that night. It used to be said in AA, identify, don't compare. Because I can compare myself out of AA in a heartbeat. I look around at these Hollywood squares and quite a few of you are a little bit different than I am. And I can just pick on those differences and say, eh, I don't need any part of this thing. And yet, I'm just like all of you. If I'm willing to find that common ground that alcoholics seem to share, 
all of the fear, anger, resentment, self-doubt, low self-esteem, all the fun stuff, plus the inability to pick up a drink or not knowing where you're going to get drunk or what the circumstances will happen after you do so. So I sat at the meeting, I listened to people who were much older than myself, and I identified with them. I identified with the way that they drank, not necessarily places they drank in, not necessarily their personal circumstances, but I knew I was in the right place. So one of those two guys who greeted me at the door uh, was a guy named Jimmy H. Now, Jimmy was 22 years old, so about a year and a half. Um, his nickname was Jimmy the Hat, although the man never wears a hat, but, you know, AA has these funny, silly nicknames that come out of nowhere. Uh, but he grabbed me, talked to me, said, listen, I'm going to come pick you up at 7 o'clock for the meeting tomorrow night. Be outside and be ready. And I didn't want to disappoint him, and I was outside and ready. It was Monday night. We went to the Crow Hill Group. Now, the Crow Hill Group was part of the cops and robbers crew that came out of New York City and Lower Westchester. And these guys were not going to put up with my BS. And I'm grateful. I, I joined a group that was big book oriented and knew that the steps were what we need to recover from alcoholism. And these people were super nice to me. They uh, showed me what sobriety looked like. They didn't tell me. You know, the spiritual toolkit that we have is not something that we throw at somebody and say, here, pick these up, but it's something that we show the newcomer how to pick up and use by showing them how we have worked them in our own lives. Read in chapter seven in our book, it tells you exactly that. We are showing them. It's not telling, it's showing. So by this example, by the example of those who have gone before me, they showed me how to put these steps into my life and what sobriety looked like. And it was pretty, pretty attractive. That didn't mean that there wasn't a lot of things that I would end up doing that I didn't want to do. Uh, my first night at that meeting, I was at the end of the meeting, everybody standing around talking, and somebody handed me a mop and said, kid, you're going to mop the whole floor. I said, what are you talking about? I do this for a living. I was working in a nursing home at the time um, in the kitchen. He said, no, you're going to mop the whole floor. That was a big floor. And I did it. And I had to ask people to move. And I got to meet some of the people by doing so. You know, these people knew more what was going to benefit me than I did. Again, what it required was willingness. What didn't require anybody beating me over the head or anything like that, belittling me. Also, the nonsense that you might hear some people say. These people cared enough about me to show me what sobriety looked like. All I had to do was be willing to listen to experience as only the dining could, and I was. Jimmy uh, started bringing me through the steps using the big book, and again, I'm grateful that he did that. He didn't just say, call me at 6 p.m. every Tuesday or whatever. He took an active interest in me going through these steps. Now, the word teacher is something that you don't hear much in AA, but as a sponsor, we are teaching people this way of life. We are showing them how we have done these things ourselves so that they can do it too. So nothing that I ask anybody to do as a sponsor is something I haven't done myself. And that's super important too, that I'm not some kind of a little dictator when it comes to being a sponsor. Um, you know, my friend Steve and I actually put together a sponsor's handbook that shows people how to use the big book to 
bring people through the steps because it's not something that we do very well. In fact, sponsorship is the weakest link in the AA chain as far as I'm concerned. A, because most people don't do it enough, and B, uh, they did what their sponsor did, which isn't always what the 12, uh, big book talks about. So, you know, when I use the big book as the source material for bringing somebody through the steps, it usually works pretty well. So Jimmy brought me through the steps, you know, he did teach me a lot about it, you know, step one. I mean, I had no idea what unmanageability was. I, and what it says in the three pertinent ideas is I had the inability to manage my own life. And guess what? I still don't have that. My life is unmanageable by the great Jim Kelly, that is. I have a power greater than myself, which takes damn good care of me. And I have to make sure that I establish a relationship with that relation, uh, God. So, you know, in step two, I had to do that. And, you know, the real insanity isn't so much that I am, you know, doing the same thing, expecting different results. But the real insanity of step two is believing that I could have a life apart from a power greater than myself. I always thought there was there was God, and there's my life, and the, t the two should never meet. And yet, when I come to then my time in AA, I find that I need to have God in every moment of each day. Believe it or not, that's how I try to live. Step three was interesting in that at that time, there was a group up in Mayapak called the Plug in the Jug Group. And what they would do at the beginners meeting is they would get all the beginners on their knees and say the third step prayer together. Now today, they're probably coming at you with pitchforks and torches if you try to do that. But it was important. You know, I get on my knees with the people that I do the third step with. Well, I sit on a bench with Judy when we did it, but um, uh, it's important to do it together. You know, that we're embarking on this journey together. Um, and, uh, you know, that was the most important decision I would ever make, except if I don't do anything afterwards, what's the point? And the point is I have to go on to step four. So, so over about three months, I was away at college up in SUNY Oswego, which was a drinking school I picked when I was drinking. And I um, came back for the Thanksgiving break. So I came back, I guess it was Thursday night, uh, met with my sponsor, and he said, okay, Saturday, we're going to do step five, which means you need to write your fourth step before you show up. And I saw him again on, uh, on Friday, and then we went... Uh, I went to his house and it was the hardest trip I ever drove because here I was going to expose the real Jim Kelly before somebody, somebody who didn't know me all that well. And I did not want anybody to see behind the curtain. Uh, the real Jim Kelly was not something I was very proud of, didn't like very much, and I didn't want you to see. I got myself to Jimmy's apartment. I handed him my fourth step and he handed it back to me and he said, you're going to read it to me. And my heart sank. I didn't want to have to vocalize this stuff. It was bad enough I had to write it. Um, but, you know, we went through the whole thing. And the beautiful experience about that was I felt like I was a real part of Alcoholics Anonymous, a real member. Uh, he helped me to feel that I was not a bad person getting good, but a sick person getting well. And that I wasn't much different than he was. He did quite a few of the same things that I did and had very, very much the same experiences. Ultimately, the story that comes out of step five is that I lived my life on the basis of fear and very little else. 
And what is the primary motive of all of our defects and shortcomings? Fear. When we go ahead to step six and seven, we find that out. Um, after looking back at our fourth and fifth step, that third column has the word fear in every single mention, and my life was no different. Of course, you know, I could sit here all day and say, I'm not going to be full of fear, and really not much changes. Because if you were to subtract the fear out, you got to have to displace it with something else. So I have to become willing, and the word is willing in step six and seven. So let God take care of all these things. I can't possibly be diligent enough to not engage in my defects of character. I'm just not that good. I haven't met the alcoholic who is that good yet. I certainly am not. And the uh, big book, which spends all of two paragraphs on these two steps, basically is telling me I need to be willing and I need to be cooperative. That's what it looks like. Um, and when fear is subtracted out of, the, out of the relationship with me and my life, and supplanted with faith, you know, if I look at things differently. I start to react to life differently. You know, I don't react when people step on my toes, or not most of the time anyway, unless you think I walk on water and do other feats. I'm still a human being. I'm still making mistakes. I do them all the time. So when it came to the eight-step list, I really already had a list. It came out of my fourth and fifth step. And next to each of those names was why the people deserved an amend. And my father was at the top of the list. I felt that he really wasn't much of a father. And, uh, you know, of course, I'm comparing him against, you know, fathers know best, Robert Young and all. And he just wasn't that man. Case in point was, you know, I was smaller than all the other kids, and they were giving me crap on the school bus. And I finally come home in tears, and I said, Dad, I need help. These kids are beating me up on the bus, and he says, well, I'll take care of it. And I thought, oh, great, he's going to teach me how to stand up for myself, maybe show me how to fight. The next morning, I get on the bus, and it makes a left on Shadeen Road, and it stops abruptly. And I know there's no pickup there. And the bus dropped, excuse me, stopped abruptly because my dad pulled his car in front of it and stopped it, and then he got on the bus in his three-piece suit and a tie and horn rim glasses. And he stands at the front of the bus and he points to every, me in the back. He says, that's my son, Jim Kelly. You leave him the hell alone. Otherwise, your parents are going to hear about it. I'm going to report you to the principal. And he thought he was doing me a big favor. Well, after that, the rocks and the baseball bats came out. It got a lot worse. And that was the very last time that I asked for help from anybody because it only made it worse. And I thought, you know, he should be at the top of the list because I resented him. And, you know, my sponsor and I walked through each and every person on the list. And the very first thing he told me was, A, your name does not belong on the list. The entire A program is your amends to yourself. This is about going out from you and to everyone else. So he said, your dad, it's going to be the toughest amend you'll probably make, but probably most important one. First, you're going to have to let go of the resentment. And then you're going to have to go to him and tell him that you want a better relationship with him, that you uh, want to own up to all the stuff that you've done in the past, and become a son. And he didn't want to hear anything about AA when I approached him, but he was happy that I became the son that I could have been all along and wasn't. And we ended up having a great relationship. It took a long time. It really did. And then I went through all the other people on the list, and there were people on the, there that I stole from that I could never find. 
Uh, growing up, I was a uh, bellhop in a hotel up in Maine uh, on the seashore, and uh, it was a drunkard's paradise. I really enjoyed myself up there. Um, and it was, it was Labor Day weekend, and I knew I was going to take off pretty soon, so I went to the, uh, all of the rooms in the hotel, and I stole all the chambermaid tips, and then I left. Uh, yeah, yay me, right? So uh, I cut out of there with a couple hundred bucks, and uh, those people were on the list. And I said to Jimmy, I'll never find these guys. You know, what am I supposed to do? He says, go to the post office, get some money orders in the amount of money that you stole. Mail it to the head of housekeeping at the Brunswick Hotel in Old Orchard Beach, Maine. And in it, put a note that says, please distribute this to all of the chambermaids. Now, whether the money was distributed or not, you did your part. It's water over the dam. And I mentioned that water over the dam thing because it comes out of the big book. Amends are not something where we keep going back for more and more until somebody gives us absolution. That's not the point of it. We are there to sit right a serious wrong. We're there to sweep off our side of the street. And we may not have somebody who's very welcome to us about doing that. And it doesn't matter. What's important is that we do our very best to set right these serious wrongs. Uh, there are some places where people will never talk to you ever again. But you have made your demonstrations on your part. And that's really an important part of this whole process. So when it comes to 10, 11, and 12, um, this is the foundation that the bedrock you have built, you will build your spiritual structure on top of. And this is super important. 10, 11, and 12 are not extra credit. You know, people in AA oftentimes act like, well, if I get to it, I do a little inventory. I might pray a little bit. I don't know what meditation is, so I'm going to skip that. And uh, yeah, I'll help somebody who wants help. So I've got 10, 11, and 12 down. And really, that's not what it's about. Uh, so I was over about a year. We moved down to Long Island. I was introduced to a guy named Don at this gigantic step meeting uh, at the Cleary School Group. And he used to meet on Sunday mornings. There was a couple of hundred people there every day, every Sunday. And Don brought me over to the 12-step sh shade and said, what are the 12 steps for? Now, keep in mind, I'm sober a year. I'm 18 years old. I'm cocky as hell. And I said, well, to recover from alcoholism, we all know this. He says, well, why don't we read step 12? Why don't we read it out loud? Read it slowly. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, he says, stop there. The whole point of our exercise, friends, is to have a spiritual awakening. It is to become God conscious. It is to establish a relationship with that God. Uh, it is to live in a different way, on a different basis. And he was right. You know, he became my sponsor and he taught me the nuts and bolts of this whole unshakable foundation for living, which is prayer, meditation, self-examination. Now, at that time, I was going to college and, you know, I would jump out of my bed at the last possible moment with the last nickel in my pocket and the last ounce of gas in my car and hop in my car to drive to my job. And I'm late. So I'm driving down the shoulder of the road with my middle finger stuck out saying, get the hell out of my way with my easy desert sticker on the back of the car. And, you know, I get to work. I duck in the side door because I'm late. I borrow money from one of my buddies so I could eat lunch because, well, I spent all my money chasing girls. Um, you know, it was chaos. I was unhappy. So, you know, I, I'm crying on Don's shoulder about this. And he says, you know, Jim, why don't you try getting up 15 minutes earlier? Why don't you try to fill up the car 
before it gets below E, then you want to get to a quarter of a tank. And maybe not spend every dime you make on Friday night chasing girls. Maybe save a little bit so you have some money for lunch. You know, and I started to do these things. And you know what? I wasn't driving down the shoulder anymore. I'm not giving everybody the finger anymore. Life gets a little bit easier. And he says, you know that 15 minutes you have now? Why don't you try to think about what's coming at you over the course of the day? In fact, much of life is repetitive. It shouldn't be a big surprise that you have to pay the rent on the first of the month. That the Long Island Lighting Company wants their bill paid on the 15th. It shouldn't be a surprise. Start to plan these things. What he was doing was trying to help me to understand what this whole idea of meditation was. And as described in the big book, it's a contemplative act of meditation. It's an old form of Christian meditation that uh, people were familiar with back in the 30s and 40s. People didn't know about Eastern forms of meditation that many people talk about today. And, you know, in this way, I started to learn about meditation. Of course, like most alcoholics, I would go to bed at night and I would rehash the entire day in my head and then project tomorrow what chaos awaited me. I'd fall asleep maybe at three or four in the morning. I was exhausted. And Don said, you know, you have the ability to select the thoughts that you dwell on. Why don't you try, try dwelling upon blackness or something without any kind of feature to it? Instead of, you know, how do dragons blow out birthday candles if they breathe fire? I mean, that's the kind of crap that kept me up to four o'clock in the morning. So um, I started to do that every time my mind wanted to bring it back to blackness. And, you know, eventually I was able to fall asleep and uh, rest, you know, rest of the night. But it, it, it underscores this old idea that I had no control over my thoughts. Meditation allows us to do that. We get to select the thoughts that we will focus upon. Instead of resentment, anger, fear, guilt, and all that other fun stuff, hey, how can I help the next still suffering alcoholic? How grateful am I that I'm on the green side of the grass today when uh, by all rights, I should be six feet under. You know, all these things. And uh, I like to say this to the people I sponsor often, and that is my life will take on the flavor of the thoughts I allow my mind to marinate in. So it's very important what I do on the inside of this head. And uh, so I do have the opportunity to actually feel good each and every day. Now, when it comes to step 12, I, I do my very best to carry the message. Quite a few of the people who are on this uh, meeting today know that I spend a lot of time carrying the message. I, I send a daily big book study email out every day and have for the last 20 some odd years. Um, I run an annual retreat at the Wilson House every March, and this year will be the sponsor, sponsorship uh, boot camp. We do something different every year. Uh, I sponsor a lot of men and women all over the place. Um, and, um, and I try my very best to be an attractive example of what sobriety looks like. Because when I step over the threshold of the meeting on the way out, I'm not running people over in the parking lot. I'm not, you know, reverting back to the insane guy that I once was. But I am trying to live this life and be a demonstration. One of the books that uh, the early AAs used to read um, before the big book was written, even after, is called um, The Sermon on the Mount by Emmett Fox. And Emmett Fox was a lecturer that uh, Bill and the gang used to listen to frequently in New York City. Bill was uh, Emmett Fox's secretary's son's sponsor. And so there's a real connection there. 
And the word demonstration shows up in his book and in ours repeatedly. And a demonstration is how we show others what sobriety looks like. Showing people how these spiritual tools that we have, how we apply them to our lives, and to make it look easy to do, because we can't make it look easy to do. We have to show people what sobriety looks like. And I'm not talking about cash and prizes. I'm talking about actually taking a little moment out of a busy day and making a phone call to somebody who's struggling or you haven't seen in a little bit. It is trying to live in such a way that uh, your whole AA group can listen to what you're saying and watch what you do. That was something that my sponsor, Don, said to me, and I said, what are you, crazy? I don't want anybody seeing what's going on. He said, you need to start to live in a way that you don't feel shame and guilt about. And, you know, it's different for every single person here. But I had to change the way I lived. I can't live like a drunk and expect to remain sober. So sponsorship has been a very important part of uh, this life for me. And what it means is to help people go through the 12 steps. And each and every person needs a different uh, approach. You know, but ultimately, this is about finding a power greater than yourself, which in my case is crazy about me. God is absolutely crazy about me. I have a fantastic life. Now, I'd love to sit here and say I made my first billion by the time I was 25, which is utter crap. It has nothing to do with it. I don't have to worry about financial things because actually God takes care of it. I just show up and do the work. Um, I make sure that I show up when I'm supposed to. I'm the guy who wakes up the rooster, so that's pretty easy. Uh, but each day, I need to do this stuff. So when I get up, I uh, take a shower, do a meditation. Uh, a bunch of my friends and I read Around the Year with Emmett Fox, which has a daily reading. I'll send out a, uh, a text message to a small group of people, and then I'll post it on Facebook, which I have a lot of followers there. Um, I work pretty close by. I live down by the World Trade Center. Uh, I work in Soho, so it's, you know, one stop on the subway, and I get to the office, and I get early, so I'm not in a big hurry. Uh, I get in, and, you know, if the phone rings, I'm not answering saying, what the hell do you want? It's, how can I help you? you know, because I know I'm being of service to my fellow man, even in my job. You know, just because somebody's not in AA doesn't mean I don't treat them with the Respect and love that they deserve. And you know what? My boss does, boss does not understand it, but it seems to work pretty damn well. You know, I manage an office building. Um, the place is a nice place to come to each day. People enjoy working there. The tenants want to actually take more space. I just don't have any. Uh, because of spiritual principles, not only applied in AA meetings, but in all departments of life. Although I still drive above the speed limit, don't judge me. Uh, but, you know, again, I'm not perfect. I don't pretend to be perfect. I don't walk on water. I do the very best that I can each day. It's, uh, you know, not always easy. But it makes me feel that I can fall asleep at night and feel good about what I've done. And, you know, the funny thing is the question of alcohol never comes in. I don't find it necessary to look for some kind of relief from life. Um, one of the things that gets me very upset is when I hear about people in AA meetings talk about that two seconds between when they put the needle in your arm and when you pass out, when you get a medical procedure done, that they're looking forward to something like that. I don't want any part of that. 
I want to be completely present with each and every one of you. I find that I don't want any kind of escape from life. There's nothing that God and I cannot overcome together. And at the very least, I could see things differently. That's what's happened because I've been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I take the time to carry this message as much as I possibly can. That doesn't mean I have an AA tattoo or I have no friends outside of AA or I have no interests out of AA, outside of AA meetings. That's not true. What I can do is I can carry this message everywhere to everyone. So there's one more small story that I'm going to shut up because I've talked long enough. Um, I'm a student of the big book. I always have been. I've done a lot of Joe and Charlie-style big book studies with my friend Big Book Dave. We haven't done that in quite a while, but that's okay. Um, <clears throat> but when you go and you read the original manuscripts of our book, they wrote the 12th step a little bit differently than when, how it appears today. And what it said back then was, uh, <clears throat> God, I got to remember how it says it. You know, let me not say it the right way. Uh, what it says is that, um, I got to look it up now, sorry. I got to look it up now, sorry about that. So step 12, it says, having had a spiritual experience as a result of this course of action, we tried to carry this message to others, especially alcoholics, and the practice these principles in all our affairs. And I think they got it the right the first time. We have an opportunity to show not only alcoholics, but everyone in our lives, the example of what it looks like to live a God-centered life. And that we can be happy, joyous, and free, no matter what the present circumstances may be. Now, many of you who are on here know that I've had some you know, setbacks and changes in my life, and yet I'm still a grateful, recovered alcoholic. God is absolutely crazy about me, and I am a satisfied customer. And I hope you guys are too. Thanks. Wow. Thank you.